Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 30th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is our last program of this calendar year. Last week, or maybe it was the week before, I don't even remember already, I had completed Clifton Emmerheiser's series of special notices to all who were against two seed line. And looking at a new year, I asked Clifton if he wanted to do any subject with me, if he wanted to discuss any particular subject with me from his website, and we would do it this week. Clifton chose the phony no Satan dogma. I guess he thought that would be a good follow-up to his two seed line series. So tonight I've had I have Clifton Emmerheiser here with me, and this will probably be part one because this is a, a lengthy series of six essays, and we are going to begin to present the highlights and, and talking points in those essays in, in a rather casual conversation, I hope. So this is the phony No Satan Dogma with Clifton Emmerheiser. Hello, Clifton. Hello, Bill. H- how are you feeling? Thanks for doing this with me. Yeah, I, I feel reasonably well. You, you know, you've been here with us in Florida for um, three months now. H- it, how does that feel? Well, the time went by fast. <laughs> H- how do you like being with us in Florida? Just fine. Just fine. You can deal with the wild parties and and the revelry all the time and and the lascivious lifestyle and all that. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> well, well, I have trolls out there accusing me of partying all the time and not doing any work. What do you think about that? Well, we'll always have trolls, I guess. I, I mean, you see my work habits, right? Is there a problem with them? I, I can't point any out. <laughs> I just thought I'd bring that up just to quell a few rumors, right? Yeah. So how do you like you like you're comfortable living here with us in Florida? Every I want everybody to know that you're happy and healthy, and if you're not happy and healthy, I'll do what I can to fix it. I have no problem. Okay. Just so that our our um our friends and listeners know that you're content and and that you're being taken care of and looked out for. That's all that matters. And you're so quiet, I can hardly get you to talk in the chat server or or, or really open up and, and say anything. It's hard. Yeah, I'm not real talkative at times. Well, you're just wonderful. You just find the way you are. I don't want to change you. I don't think I can after this time. <laughs> this seems to be to have been a continuation from the Special Notices series, but under a different title. However, when, when I, that's the way I thought about this series when I looked back. But when I looked at your document archive, you actually began these a few years later. You finished the special notices against, you know, to all against two seed line in, in early 2003. You didn't start this series until December 2006, addressing the no Satan dog, dogma. Yeah. And, and published most of them in 2007. So what made you want to discuss this No Satan subject? Were people writing you about this? Were they confronting you with this? I was running into it everywhere I turned. Wow. 
Well, we'll talk about uh, about well, what. Well, Sheldon Emery was especially pushing it. Uh, I think he got it from Gerda Cook or something like Gerda that. Gerda Koch. Couch or it, it's spelled K O C H, right? It's, some uh, people say it, Koch. Well, if it's maybe part Jew, maybe. Yeah, right. But the Jews pronounce it both ways. Koch. Oh, do they? Koch. It. it well, well, the mayor of New York City when I was a kid in the eighties was a Jew named Edward Koch. Yeah. And he pronounced it Koch. But there's a prominent um, industrial family here in America named Coke. And it's the same spelling, and they're Jews, and it's Coke Industries. It is a pretty big privately owned company that they own. Mm -hmm. So they pronounce it Coke. So there's Cokes and there's Koches, and, and that they're probably, I don't know if anybody with that name is actually German, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'm not but sure. But they're both Jews, right? Oh, yeah, the Cokes, so the industrialist family, they're Jews. It don't and make a hell of a lot of difference, then, does it? No, it don't make a lot of difference how you pronounce their name. It's It should be. Ashes. That's what it should be. <laughs> this um, this no Satan dogma. I I I went through your first um two and a half of your essays on this topic, and I just wanted to pick out the highlights instead of presenting the entire text. That this is a subject that you said that you had been needing to address, and that for about the last two months. You have had this um, this need to address this topic. I guess people confronted you with it. And I saw a bunch of emails in your documents. You would save some emails on this topic from particular people that, that I guess were in correspondence with you. And, and one of them was um, one of them was titled No Satan Venom. That's how you felt about this topic at that time, right? <laughs> no Satan venom, and it was a bunch of emails. This um, promotion of the idea that it was that there is no devil. At the same time, they say the devil is the flesh, right? That yeah, these people right. is that what Emery taught? I guess that's what Goethe Koch taught. Well, several of them are te teaching that. In other words, look in the mirror, and, and you're looking at at a devil, a reflection of a devil. So that means we're all devils. All men sin, right? And fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. None of us can be without sin. So we're all devils in that case. Now, your 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 first contention, and, and I'd like to talk to you about this, because you also mentioned this in your two C-line series, is that by promoting this heretical concept, it expunges the foundation of Genesis 3.15, upon which all the rest of the biblical gospel story rests. Well, let's talk about that concept for, for a minute. All of the um, children of Adam, but first we have Genesis 3.15, and, and then in Genesis chapter 6, we have these, these um, fallen angels who, who are miscalled or misrepresented as sons of God. We know that Adam was the son of God. We have these fallen angels going into the daughters of men. That's the same thing that happened in Genesis chapter chapter 3, the way I see it. Yeah. The, the way I see it, yeah, you know, Paul of Tarsus says in, in Romans that without the law, sin is not accounted. Right. So what 
why is there punishment if sin can't be accounted without law in Genesis chapters 3 and 6? Only Israel is given the law so that other people aren't under it. Well, well, that's true, but then why did Yahweh punish people? He did give them a law, the law of kind after kind. Oh, yeah, right. That your wife had to be flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone. And even though that's not really law, as we know law at Mount Sinai, it's still commandments from God to the Adamic people. So what I'm saying is that alone should prove to people that the, the, the punishment for the sins dealt out in Genesis chapters 3 and Genesis chapter 6 have to be in violation of that. Otherwise, right. how could Yahweh punish those people? Uh, it's, it's his way of operating. He always warns them ahead of time. Right. Right, he 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 didn't. Oh, okay. There was no law against murder, so Cain didn't get punished. Cain didn't get punished. There were no witnesses, except for Cain himself, and there were and and God, but there weren't two or three witnesses, and Cain denied it. Am I my brother's keeper? To me, the the fact that there was punishment in Genesis chapters three and Genesis chapter six, and and the fact that the only thing that Yahweh said was that you're you're wife was to be bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh and and that there was to be kind after kind proves what the nature of those sins are but that's not what i'm getting at here right i'm not getting that that's not why i brought this up you say for for if there is no satan then there was no physical seduction of eve and in turn there was there could be no seed of the serpent right so that does unhinge the denial of a Satan, does unhinge that declaration of enmity in Genesis chapter 3.15. Right. When we look at Genesis chapter 6, it's really the same two parties in, 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 in operation. And when we go further down the line where the, the Israelites were told to exterminate all the Canaanites, that's the same two parties. Yeah. The doctrine of Balaam. And, and we can follow that all the way through the scripture. Those opposing parties in scripture, the Edomites, Esau married Canaanites, the Edomites and the Israelites, the, the adversaries of Christ and the people of Christ that the sheep that heard his voice, it is those same two parties all the way through scripture. Right. Do you have anything to add to that? Yet you say, Fitter, if there is no Satan, then there was no physical seduction of Eve, and in turn, no seed of the serpent. And if there was no seed of the serpent to bruise the seed of the woman, we as Adamites have no salvation. Now, now that's predicated on... And, and I'm not really arguing with this, but I think that there's two interpretations. That's per, and, and you understand that, right? The collective interpretation and the singular interpretation. Mm -hmm. that, that's predicated on the fact that Genesis 3.15 is the protoevangelion, the first gospel. Right. So Christ being our savior, his heel had to be bruised by the enemy. Right. Do you want to talk about that? Do you, do you want to, if, if there's no seed of the serpent, there's no bruising, right? Right. 
<laughs> I'm trying to get you into a conversational mode. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm trying to go there too. That, that's difficult for me sometimes. <laughs> you're, you're you're exactly matter of fact. <laughs> Without being redeemed by a bruised Messiah, how could be if he's not bruised, we can't be redeemed, can we? No. I, I mean, you wrote that. I didn't, I'm not saying right. it. You wrote that. As you could clearly comprehend the implications of such a diabolical heresy that there's no Satan are utterly unchristian. So these people are worshiping a bloodless Christ because the seed of the serpent couldn't have bruised him. So who bruised him if the seed of the serpent didn't bruise him? It couldn't have been his own people, right? Right. His, his, there's two parties in Genesis 3.15. Right. So if the flesh is Satan, the flesh has to be the serpent. That that makes no sense, right? Yeah, right. Don't make it, any sense. It, it doesn't make a, a damn bit of sense. It's just ridiculous. If there are not two distinct parties in Genesis three fifteen that will have enmity towards one one towards another, that then there's no sense whatsoever. Yeah, it's the enmity of Genesis three fifteen. So so these people are, are actually um, by denying that there's a Satan, they are actually twisting the, the, the meaning of the scripture and, and, and that they are refusing, that they're refusing to accept the fact that there are two part, distinct parties in Genesis 3.15. Right. You, you brought up as your first bit of evidence that there is a Satan, Luke 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 18. And, and he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Yeah, I quoted that. Do, do you remember what you said about that? I don't remember just offhand. I, I, I know I... That they're actually, if they're denying there's a Satan, that they're actually calling Yahshua Christ a liar. Yeah. So there must be a Satan. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, a little further on, you, you get, and, and we're not quite there yet, but you, you talk about the claim that was made when, when, when you did your two seed line series that Satan was only a pronoun. So if Satan is the word, is a pronoun, which it's not, of course, but if the word Satan is a pronoun, and Christ said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. The pronoun has to be a substitute for another noun, right? Right. So what noun could it be? Can you imagine? Hardly. <laughs> we, and, but we have in, in Revelation chapter 12, Christ equates Satan to the devil, to the serpent, to, to, the, to, the, to the, um, the great dragon. So Christ could have said, I beheld the great dragon fall from heaven. So maybe Satan's a pronoun for the great dragon. There's three, or, or three descriptions of the same entity. I beheld the devil fall from heaven. So maybe Satan's a pronoun for the devil. <laughs> well, if you, if you want to see Satan, you should take a, 
uh, a visit to a local jewelry shop. Well, well, that's the crux of the issue, and, and that I, I had hoped to get into at the end of this evening, but we could go there now if you want. Well, it, it was just offhand. Uh, right. Is, is there anything in the Bible, in, in your understanding of 2C line, is there anything that insists that this Satan is a heavenly being that comes down and seduces Eve and goes back up into heaven? No. Nothing whatsoever. But that's, it, it, you see what I mean? It's a false dichotomy that was set up, right? Where these no Satan people are denying that Satan. But that's not the Satan that we believe in. <laughs> you want to explain the Satan we believe in? Well, they generally run jewelry stores. <laughs> yeah, you know that word jewel? is you could break that down into Jew L and understand that jewels are, are the gods that the Jews sell us. Jewels are the, the gods of the Jews. That that's the way I look at the word jewel. I, I know you'd like the you prefer the word jam, right? So that you don't have to say that word Jew in yeah, there. I, I don't like to use the word Jew. <laughs> That, that um idea that Satan is a pronoun. If Satan was a pronoun in Luke ten eighteen, then we could only we could only substitute. If we want to understand what the noun is, we can only substitute it with dragon or or that old serpent or devil. Yeah, because that's the 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 the, the explanation of Satan that Christ Himself gave us. Right. It, it's, you know, I understand it in Hebrew, the word means adversary, and it's an adjective. And we're going to talk a little in a little bit why it's a noun, but it's used as a, um, a personal entity to describe his adversaries. An important theme of the Bible is that throughout the Bible, throughout the scriptures, and especially in the New Testament, there is there are always adversaries who are never candidates for conversion. That right. must be because they are collectively Satan. Right. If they're never candidates for conversion, if there's never any possibility of reforming these people, but we're told to kill them all, if these people if, if David hated God's adversaries with a perfect hatred, as he says in, in the Psalms. Don't people think that there's genetic people here on earth that are Satan? Well, they, they, um, <coughs> they walk around and they, they come in contact with Satan almost daily and don't recognize him as he is exactly satan's right there in front of their faces all the time and they're claiming there's no satan because they're denying this heavenly demon that that's as powerful as god which is proper but they shouldn't be denying the satan that's right in front of their faces that can never be redeemed whose children can never be redeemed 
who can never be Christians, who, who are forever, what Paul said, contrary to all men. And we could see in history that generation after generation after generation, they've been contrary to all men. They never change. They're, they're uh, born that way. Right. It, it's Satan is a genetic disorder, right? It's passed down from generation to generation. That they're corrupt seed, just like the Bible tells them. Like Esau's uh, relation. Well, well, right. That's how come Esau could never recover the birthright. He could never seek repentance. Because his children were bastards. Well, then it's the unforgivable sin. Right. So we basically create Satans when we mix our race. Right. Because they could never be reconciled to God. You asked if, if, if you know, in reference to Luke ten eighteen, if, if these um, no Satan people were going to declare that Yahshua Christ himself said, or, or, or that he didn't really see Satan as lightning falling from heaven. Because Satan doesn't exist, right? I mean, they would have to face Christ and tell him that he was wrong. That he didn't see this. Even though he declared that he did see it. Right. Well, it would be a false claim. So Christ would be making a lie. So he would have to be outside of the New Jerusalem with the dogs and the idolaters and whoever makes a lie as you said in, in, in your paper. Right. Let's talk about this idea that Satan is a pronoun. <laughs> this is fun. I think this is funny. Well, when you first addressed this no Satan issue, you actually gave an entire lesson in grammar. Yeah. The whole paper, the whole first paper almost, was a lesson in grammar. Yet you had to describe what a pronoun was, which is pretty sad that you have to do this for grown men. You had to describe that a pronoun was, what a pronoun was, that it had to, a pronoun takes the place of a noun. Right. So if Satan is a pronoun, they have to be able to identify the noun. Yeah, if, if, if Satan is a pronoun, what's a noun? Right. If, if you say, when Bill cooks dinner, he always makes it too spicy. That word he is a pronoun, right? Right. And we could easily see it's a substitute for Bill. I mean... <laughs> This is fourth well, grade grammar. Well, we use pronouns <laughs> in our speech uh, daily. <laughs> so if Satan's only a pronoun, what's the noun it stands for? We have to go back to, to um, Revelation chapter 12, and we can only substitute devil or dragon or serpent. <laughs> There's no other noun. <laughs> There's one exception to this that, that I know of in Scripture, and, and that's where, you, where Christ calls Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Yeah. And for me, the lesson there is that we can be Satan because Peter, Christ had laid out to Peter exactly what was going to happen to him. He was going to be tortured and crucified, and after three days, he was going to be raised from the dead. And Peter said, oh, no, that's not the way it's going to happen. So, of course, I'm paraphrasing, right? So Christ said, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter expressed direct opposition to 
to the word of God. So Peter was acting like an adversary. But that doesn't make him a permanent adversary. Right. And and the Bible is replete with permanent adversaries that are never told to repent, that are never told to to, um, be obedient, that are never told by Christ to follow me. In other words, he usually just tells them, go thy way. He doesn't say, follow me. He doesn't try to make Christians of them. And the apostles later warn of the warn us of those people. In, in in John, in the second epistle of John, he tells us very clearly that if somebody won't abide the doctrine of Christ, don't even have them in your house or or, or bid them Godspeed. And if they're denying the gospel of Christ, then they are the antichrists. And and we're told to avoid those people and shun them. Not try to convert them. In other words, if you visit a jewelry store and there's a Jew at the head of it, you don't wish him a good day when you leave. Right. You just leave. You can't wish him a good day because you're a partaker in his sins when you greet him and show him kindness. That's 2 John verses 9 to 11. Other challenges in grammar, I mean, in, in this paper, you had to, yet you defined what articles were, definite and indefinite articles, what adjectives were, what nouns were, and, and you talked about grammatical cases, what, which we only have three of in English, the nominative, the objective, and the possessive. And, and then you talked about definite articles and how they're put together with adjectives to form nouns as a substantive or with nouns to make proper nouns. And that's a substantive. When you see a definite article with, with a noun, you, you may be the, the example of a book. You could have a book, which is any book. Hand me a book, and, and whatever book you give me, I can't complain what, what book you gave me. But if I ask you to hand me the book, that's a definite article. I'm talking about a particular book. Right. And if you give me the wrong book, I'm going to say, Clifton, this is the wrong book. It's not the book that I wanted. It, it's so, so when we see the, the word satanos in, in, in Greek, because it's a Hebrew word, but they wrote satanos in Greek. When we see the article, ho satanos, that's the Satan. It's a particular Satan. It's basically a proper name. Right. Where it says in John that Cain was the father of the wicked one, Hoponeros. That that's a particular wicked one. It's not just any evil person. Is there anything else you want to say about this grammar? You you spent half of I know it was um twelve years ago now, but you spent I bet three quarters of his first issue of, of this No Satan Dog. I had this two-volume gra- gra- books on grammar. <laughs> and I was checking that thing out real close to make sure that I knew what I was talking about. Well, yeah, right. Yeah, right. We have to do that to make sure we're right. But that these elements of grammar are things that we should have learned in the fourth, fifth, sixth grades. Right. That every one of us should know the difference between a pronoun and an adjective. 
and the substantive might be like more towards high school, but it's still basic elementary grammar that a substantive is a noun or an adjective that's not really a proper noun by itself, like book, but it's it, it has a grammatical construct, which we use the article to designate, the definite article, that makes it a proper noun, the book, a particular book, the Satan, not just any man, but that man. You made a little list here of other New Testament names referring to Satan. I, I'm not, yet. you know, some of these to me are, are collective in general, but the word Satan is collective in general, right? That because there's a race of people descended from that serpent in Genesis 3.15 that are all serpents. Yeah. And that race of people, a lot of them are extant in the New Testament, and they're called serpents. And it goes all the way to Revelation 12, I think it is. Well, well, right, but it goes all the way to Revelation 20 as well. Oh, right? yeah, 20, yes, right. It goes 20. <laughs> and, and that's where they disappear. That's where they're all going to the lake of fire. So they're not in Revelation chapter 21. Well, the sooner the better. <laughs> well, well, in the Garden of, in, in, in the garden, in the garden of Eden, there's two allegorical trees, there's a tree of life and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in Revelation 21 and, and Revelation chapter 22 at the end of the book, there's only a tree of life. There is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. Some of these other other um that this isn't really a complete list it's a pretty complete list some of these other names the, the devil or diabolos and that means the slanderer but it's used very often with a definite article which which refers to a particular slanderer there's the word demon there's the word um, Abaddon or Apollyon, and, and that appears in Revelation chapter 9. And then there's, in Revelation chapter 12, the accuser of the brethren. And, and I'm probably going to bring this phrase up again. If we're all brethren, if, if the children of Adam are all brethren, if the children of Israel are all brethren, who could the accuser of the brethren be? Especially if all Israel is saved. You can't have it both ways. Who could this accuser of the brethren be? It must be someone who can't be saved. A bastard. Well, well right. It could be a bastard. This word antidikos it is sort of like a... Um, it's sort of like a synonym for adversary. It appears in 1 Peter chapter 5. And, and then is the, the Hebrew term Beelzebub. That, that means dung god, right? In, in Hebrew. Or, or under flies or something like that. It could mean either dung god or fly god, lord of the flies, right? 
It can be Lord of Dung or Lord of the Flies, either way, or Dung God or Fly God. It's like God. those flies that fly around over right. a piece of dung. Right. That is, okay, if it's Beelzebub or Beelzebul, because sometimes it's spelled either way. And one of them's Dung God and the other one's Lord of the Flies. The other one's Lord of the Dung Pile. I, I think there's probably a, a um, close correlation there anyway, right? Because we always see flies on dung. That, then there's Belial, which Paul uses, but that's popular in, in the um, Old Testament. It appears several times. Then there's the deceiver of the whole world. How could that refer to a member of our race? Yeah, that's a good question. Now, now the serpent was a deceiver right from the beginning. So if you imagine the deceiver of the whole world, Adam and Eve were a part of that world. So how could the deceiver of the whole world, who even deceived Eve, be a part of our race? It must be somebody from outside of our race. Right. The evil one, the father of lies, the god of this world. Now, there, there aren't any... Um, Israelites that I think would take the title God of this world or fit that title. A murderer from the beginning, the old serpent, Revelation chapter 12, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the tempter. Let's look at that prince of this world title. Christ said, the prince of this world cometh and has nothing with me. Right. In other words, the prince of this world couldn't be convinced of the gospel and be saved. The prince of this world wasn't a, a candidate for Christianity. There's no such thing as Jews for Jesus then. Well well right. If we go to um if we go to Matthew chapter four or Luke chapter four, we see the temptation of Christ in the desert and the devil takes Christ up to a mountain and he says that all these kingdoms are, are, I'm paraphrasing, right? He says that all these kingdoms are under my control. And I'll turn that control over to whoever I will. So the devil must be the prince of this world. Yeah. But when the high priests were coming to contend with Christ, Christ said, the prince of this world cometh and has nothing with me, has no part with me. So we see that the high priest was the devil. Okay. In other words, it was a person. It was a genetic being, a genetic person that was this devil, that was this prince of this world. And that is Satan. These people are Satan, not floating angels in, in the sky with, with pitchforks and tails and wings. The Bible shows us again and again that there are people who are collectively Satan. And we see in, in the Revelation that these fallen angels fell a third of the host of heaven, fell to earth, and their place was no longer found in heaven. And with them is the old serpent equated, associated in Revelation chapter 12. So that old serpent in Revelation chapter 3 
has to be one of those fallen angels in Revelation chapter 12. Yeah. They're people. And they have descendants here or seed. And and I don't know what's so hard to, to, to understand about that because the whole Bible, doesn't the entire Bible basically confirm that? In Job, Satan, in Job, Yahweh says to Satan, what are you doing, Satan? He didn't say he was floating through the air. He said he was walking up and down upon the earth. Yeah. So you ask here, why is it so necessary to stress the use of the article when we study the scriptures? For one reason, if we don't know about the use of the article, whether it is there or absent, we cannot know what the scriptures are saying. Where Christ told the apostles to go out and preach the gospel to all nations, to all nations. It says in the King James, to all nations. The article is there. He doesn't mean any nations. It should say all the nations. It should mean to refer to particular nations. And, and it's the same thing when we see the tempter, the God of this world. And that article is always there. The old serpent or that old serpent, it's the definite article. It's translated that way. It means a particular old serpent. In, in that case, it must be referring to the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. There's no other old serpent in Scripture, I don't think, that I've ever seen. <laughs> that fits the description of that old serpent. It's like sending missionaries to the Congo. Well, well right. So you write that with the definite article, the scriptures are speaking of a genuine personal devil or Satan. You write here that there is one language which the Bible was translated into which doesn't have an article. And that's Latin, and it doesn't. I don't know why Latin didn't have a definite article. All the other, all, all of the, the, the um, romance languages that came from Latin... They all added articles. They all have it. French, Spanish, Portuguese. They all added the definite article to their language. And those languages evolved from But Latin didn't have one. And the Romans thought that Latin was the perfect language. But you couldn't have a Satan. <laughs> I, 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 I think that's funny. I, I, I don't know. I can't explain why that happened. So, so you did your um, your explanation of all this grammar, and you said, I hope I don't lose you at this point, but we have to go a step further when speaking of the article. Articles are a type of adjective that modifies the subject. The article is actually an adjective itself, but they're called articles to distinguish them from other adjectives, like a, an, the. And, and the, or the or the are adjectives because they modify a noun or another adjective. So the article modifies a noun so that we understand that it's being used in a way to refer to a particular object or, or one member of a particular class of objects, right? Not just a computer, but the computer, a particular computer. So it almost does become like a proper noun. 
because it refers to a particular, it labels a particular object or person. You say there are two kinds of nouns, a common noun, such as a book, a chair, a table, and a proper noun, such as John, Mary, Ohio. And as a rule, nouns always are capitalized. Proper nouns are always capitalized and common nouns are not. And, and that's just the way we do it in English, right? Proper nouns do not need the word the, the definite article in front of them to denote the object, person or entity intended. A personal name is a proper noun and is already definite. It's already definite in English. And it is capitalized to indicate that it is a, it is a proper noun. But in Greek, one may and more often than not does see the definite article before a noun, including proper nouns. And that's true. That makes it a proper noun. That makes it refer to a particular individual, even when it's a name. They put the article in front of the in, in front of the name so that we can't get confused about which Herod or which Michael or which John. I just thought it might be um, interesting to see the, the links that you went to to explain to these no Satan people that the language of the Greek New Testament insists that there's a Satan. And it's a proper noun, Satan. No matter how you want to picture that Satan doesn't matter. You have to, looking at the language of the scriptures, and, and this is true in the Old Testament as well, where the proper noun, where the articles, the definite articles are used. That's why we have Adam, and, and we have Ha-Adam, and Eth-Ha-Adam, right? To denote whether it's just one of a type of man, one of a certain race of man, or whether it's a particular individual. And that's Etha Adam, right? So you spent probably five or six pages on that grammar explaining all those elements of grammar, because it does prove, and, and anybody who looks at it honestly would have to admit that it's talking about a particular Satan, and not just any individual that might be an adversary at any given moment, like Peter was at one particular moment. Yeah, right. But that didn't mean that Peter was always an adversary. When Peter was obedient to Christ, he wasn't an adversary. He was just stubborn and wanted to do things his own way. So when he assisted on it, Christ let him know that he's playing that role as, a, as an adversary. In in part two, you, you you wanted to discuss the um the motivation to promote this no Satan position. And all you could imagine is that it undermines the truth of Genesis three fifteen. If you could be convinced that there's no entity as such entity as Satan, then you could probably be convinced that that guy in the jewelry store is just a swell guy, and 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 right. You should try to baptize him next Sunday, or have him over for dinner. <laughs> that that's it. It is that the only um, motivation that you can imagine? It 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 breaks the Bible, right? It breaks the racial message of the Bible, right? If we can all be Satan. 
that then it, it and and if we could be convinced of that then race doesn't mean anything in the bible right and, and we're going to talk about that a little further on when we discuss the um the first epistle of john in in relation to this because there are no satan people who love to take certain passages out of the first epistle of John out of context and twist them into pretzels, to use your own analogy. Yeah, right. Another um, example you use to prove that there's a Satan it is in, in Romans 16.20, where Paul said to the Romans in his salutation, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Right. And, and isn't that an, 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 a metaphor that Paul borrowed right from Genesis 3.15 to, to, to make that connection for us in our minds? It would be pretty hard to see it isn't. It, and, um, that's the second time that he did that. The first time he did that was in his second epistle to the Thessalonians where he said, and, and he was speaking in the present tense, and all of the Judeo-Christians screw this one up because they try to project it into the last prophetic week of seven years way in the future. Yeah, right. <clears throat> Paul was speaking in the present tense where he said that Satan is seated in the temple of God pretending that he is God in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That was in the present tense, and Paul was Paul had written that letter from Corinth when he was in Corinth, probably in 50 or 51 AD. He told the Thessalonians that Satan was seated in the temple of God, pretending to be God. And then six years later, maybe seven, right, in, in about 57 AD, he wrote this epistle to the Romans, and he said, And the God of peace shall brew Satan under your feet shortly. What did Paul know? <laughs> this is 57 AD. Now, now, the uprising in Judea didn't happen until 65 AD. And the destruction of Jerusalem that Paul had already said in 2 Thessalonians, Satan was sitting in the temple. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple happened in 70 AD. Right. So Romans 16.20 is prophetic of what was going to come upon Jerusalem. It had to be. Because Paul already expressed and understanding in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that those people sitting in that temple were Satan. <laughs> and they were people. It wasn't some devil from the sky that was sitting in the temple pretending to be God. It was the Sadducees who were the high priests appointed by Herod pretending to be God. There's a particularly interesting character as Herod. Yeah, Herod was described as the great red dragon, right? Yeah. In Revelation chapter 12, who, who would try to kill the Christ child. And he was an Edomite. And he was an Edomite, as we know from the histories of Josephus. Four times he was called an Edomite by Josephus. And Josephus 
Yeah, you know, Josephus is a pretty good witness because it's well known in history that Josephus was actually a good friend of the family of Herod Agrippa. And he got a lot of inside information on the Herod family right from Herod Agrippa too. They were good friends. This is recorded in history and, and he's talked about in Josephus. They were into, his family intermarried with the Herods. I think Josephus is, if I'm not mistaken, I think his daughter married a, a male from the, from the family of Herod. Josephus wasn't aware of the, the, the evil of the Edomites. He wasn't. He thought that they could be Judeans or Jews, right? When he recorded all of that about the Edomite admixture with the Judeans, he's not a biased witness. He's a very objective witness because he had the family of Herod Agrippa II as Herod Agrippa II personally and his family as his close friends. And and this is something that unless you really pay attention to Josephus and read his life and all of that, you most people don't understand. He's not a biased witness at all. And he's telling us four times that Herod's an Edomite, his mother's an Edomite, his father's an Edomite. And he's got inside information, straight from the straight from the dragon's mouth. <laughs> I, I don't um. To, to me, that's pretty incredible. Now, now here you bring up after Paul's prophecy in Romans chapter sixteen, you, you bring up the fact that Christ told, and you've used this illustration a lot but it's true christ told those bad fig jews in judea that they were the lineal descendants of cain in matthew chapter 23 where he said that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of the righteous abel unto the blood of zacharias the son of barakias whom you slew between the temple and the altar and if they were not the, the if these adversaries in judea these bad fig jews in judea that christ was addressing that were opposed to him if they were not the descendants of Cain Christ would have had no authority for making such an accusation he would have been a false accuser how could you be blamed for the blood of Abel if your ancestors weren't even alive when Abel died since you're descended from Seth and if you're not descended from Seth who are you descended from they would have to be descended from Cain. And we could go through the scripture and demonstrate how they are descended from Cain. Why did the non-seed liners have a problem with that? Unless they're really trying to undermine us and convince us that there really is no devil. There's a lot of those. So they're devils themselves attempting to convince us that there's no devil. And if they're not devils themselves, they're, they're surely taking the part of the devil because they're doing the devil a huge favor. You mentioned that a few times in this series of papers, that they're really working on behalf of the devil to convince us that there is no devil. What would Sheldon Emery's, why would he, yeah, you know, he was already established as a, a, a pastor or a minister or whatever, but when he found this no devil doctrine, and he took the whole thing up and started to teach it. Yeah. 
what would be his motivation for doing that? It, it, it I, I just think it's crazy. And, and, and the next thing you do is you discuss the, um, the way of Cain. Do you want to read your, your couple of paragraphs there on the way of Cain? They're, they're your words. You wrote them 12 years ago. The way of Cain. Let's now vividly describe what is meant by the way of Cain. If one turns on his television <clears throat> to a religious channel and the TV camera scans the audience of a religious service, revealing a multicultural audience of people or a mixed race choir singing, one has just witnessed the way of Cain. If one turns on the TV and a football, basketball, or baseball game is in progress and there are multicultural players in the game, one is observing the way of Cain. If one turns on his TV and a news program is in progress with multicultural, multiracial, I'm sorry, multiracial <laughs> newscasters, one is seeing the way of Cain. Absolutely, and you keep that um, you keep that analogy going. If one goes to a food supermarket during the watermelon season. And one can only find seedless watermelons. One is coming in contact with the way of Cain. Why? Because they're hybrids, right? That they're hybrids. If one takes a drive through the countryside during the wheat, corn, or soybean harvest at our present time, and and all your life in Fostoria, you lived right in the middle of that, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> there were farms, huge agricultural farms all around. Great big science in the field of the hybrids is that right. the bigger crop was grown from. We saw them all, all over the place in Fostoria, even when we were there in September at your house. We we saw all these signs on all the little pot, pat, patches of land showing showing that they were being grown from a certain type of hybrid seed. And, and we saw that on all the crops. And they were kind of advertising for their hybrids. They weren't all Monsanto. It was all different kinds of companies. I mean, Monsanto's the biggest. And my, uh, my wife's uh, niece's husband was, was a salesman for seed, you know. And they grew all this out in the Pacific Islands and stuff for the next year's crop. Wow. Uh, hybriding. Uh, uh, new varieties of uh well well here you make a broad statement that as today nearly all grain is all grain seed is hybrid but you lived all your life at a small farm town surrounded by big agriculture farms and and there's oil processing plants in town and all the grain gets shipped into the oil processing plants that there's a huge mill in Fostoria. Manel Mill. Yeah, and, and all the grain gets shipped to that mill, and they, they mill the grain right there and ship it out to the cereal companies or bread companies well, or whatever. it's the best flour that you can get. And, and when I was driving up and down all those country roads, all those roads in between the farm fields, and when we were in, at your house for at least a month this year, all the time that we were there, and, and I saw all these signs telling me what kind of hybrid each of, of the sections in the, every field was. Well, the farmers are actually proud of that. 
Yeah, they must be. They're putting up all the signs. They must be proud of it, that they're growing such and such a hybrid seed and, and, and the, the experimental plots and all kinds of stuff. It, it is horrible. It's like the entire agriculture business up there. It is a hybrid experiment. Well, the, the, one of the problems they run into hybriding, uh, weaknesses in a particular grain will uh, take over. So they had to create a new hybrid to resist that disease. And so uh, the number of times that this, these different grains are hybridized is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. That, now, there's a couple of talking points here. Here you go on to discuss the way of Cain, and, and you say not only is it the way of Cain, but it is identical to the doctrine of Balaam. Revelation 2.14 says, and, and this is Christ speaking to the churches, but I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. And you say the word fornication in this verse means race mixing, and it certainly does, and we're going to discuss that momentarily. So whatever the place and whatever the event, if it's multicultural in any way, shape, or form, it's the way of Cain, and known in Scripture as the doctrine of Balaam, or Balaam, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah, you know, in, in that same chapter, Christ goes on to talk about Jezebel teaching his servants to commit fornication. And because she wouldn't repent, he was going to throw her and those who commit fornication with her onto a couch and put them through tribulation. But he didn't say he was going to kill them. Then he said, and I will kill their children with death. Why would you kill the children, but not the people committing the fornication? The only reason has to be that the children are bastards. Yeah. Now, this way of Cain is mentioned in, in the epistle of Jude, right? And Jude brings it up in this context. He says that there were men of old who were condemned. In, in, in olden times, these men were condemned who snuck in, who came in privily into the assemblies of the people of God and taught false doctrines, and that they went in the way of Cain and the error of Balaam. That's how Jude describes it. So if there is only one race, if we all descended from Adam and Eve, how could there be men of old condemned sentenced to condemnation, who came in privily or secretly in among the people of God. How could that be? It can't be. There must be another race of people to sneak in among us. We can't sneak in privily amongst ourselves. How do we do that? If I belong in your family, and I just walk in a room, how could you say I came in privily? If I come over for Christmas dinner and bring a big ham's ass and slap it on the table, how could you say I came in privily? <laughs> yeah, you might say that I came in and made trouble, but I didn't sneak in. If, 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 
if I'm teaching things among the people, I'm not being, I'm not trying to hide the fact that I'm there. But Jude says these men came in privily and calls them false brethren. Now, if I come to your house and I don't belong there, I'm a false brethren because I'm not one of your relatives that was invited for Christmas dinner, right? So then I'm a false brethren that that, that this, the, the language that the Apostle Jude uses shows us that there must have been another race of people in those days of old who came in among the, the people of God and started teaching bad ideas. That they didn't belong there. In, in other words, the little um, the little idiosyncrasies in the language, the little um, phrases and nuances in the words the apostles chose proved two seed line. Proved that there, there was another race of people who did not belong there. That couldn't have been from the same race as the people of the children of Israel. And it was they who followed after the way of Balaam. And, and the way of Cain, because Cain had to be mixed. If the two, if, if the, the way of Cain and, and the error of Balaam or the doctrine of Balaam, if those two things are, are set forth as, as descriptions of the same error, that then Cain had to be a bastard. He had to be a product of fornication. Here you you talk about a um, a claim by Stephen E. Jones, right? In his um, Babylonian connection, and he sets forth the idea that the Jews are evil only because of some bad religious concepts they learned in ancient Babylon while they're in captivity. You want to talk about that? Oh. Do I have it down here or any place? It, it's right there. It, it's that's what you would wrote twelve years ago on on, on it. <clears throat> Jones is trying to say that the the, the um. Yes, you know, he, he was bad news, Stephen Jones. He's basically positing the idea that the evil in Judah started with the captivity. Yeah, he he wrote a book called The Babylonian Connection. And... Well, well, here you wrote that the term Babylonian <clears throat> in the Babylonian Talmud has... Absolutely nothing to do with any religion, which Judah learned while they were in Babylon. And, and that's Jones's contention. That's his claim. Mm -hmm. And really, that term Babylonian simply designates where the Babylonian Talmud was compiled into writing. It has nothing to do with where they got their ideas from. None whatsoever. And, and that's the bait and switch that Jones pulls, right? He pulls like a switch there. And, and and you quote a quote from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia on, on the Talmud, which explains that there are actually two Talmuds, the Palestinian Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. And that each has different gemera 
but the same Mishnah text. So they're almost alike. And all the two different Talmuds, the Babylonian Talmud is the more important and has received far more attention. It was more popular. And, and that the, the rabbis that wrote the Babylonian Talmud were, and their decisions and, and, and their writings were more popular than the rabbis that wrote the, um, the Palestinian Talmud, even though the Mishnah or the commentary on the law, I think that is, I think that's what the Mishnah is. That was the same. And, and the article goes on to state that the Mishnah, after its completion about A.D. 200, became the basic text of study in the Babylonian and Palestinian rabbinical academies. That's 800 years after the captivity, right? So we can't look back to the Babylonian captivity of Judah and say that that's where they got these bad ideas. That's where Judaism came from, because it's not. The Palestinian Talmud was completed about 400 AD and the Babylonian about a century later. The later, containing approximately 2.5 million words, is three times as large as the former. The Babylonian Talmud's a lot more lengthy than the Palestinian. And, and you explain here that to understand this documentation, one must realize that the Babylonian Talmud was not completed until after the siege of Jerusalem by Titus in 70 AD. And, and that was way after. It was a couple of hundred years after. After which a group of bad fig Jews returned once more to Babylon. And they did. And, and in, in the early medieval period, the Jews were still in Babylon. And the Jews were training rabbis in Babylonia and sending them all throughout the Mediterranean. And there's met that there are mentions of the Jews getting their rabbis from Babylon in medieval literature that Babylon became a school, but that wasn't until well after the destruction of the temple. You say that, in other words, the term Babylonian and Babylonian Talmud is the geographic area where it was completed in writing. It was about 500 AD and not, as Stephen Jones claims, about the 6th century BC. So, so Jones lies about the Talmud. He lies about the um, when he makes the claim that the Jews of the time of Christ got their religion from Babylon in the 6th century BC, he's basically lying so that he could explain the evil of the Jews at the time of Christ. But what he really doesn't see is that they were mixed-race Edomites, and that's why they were evil. That they weren't evil just because they had bad ideas from a Talmud that didn't exist yet. That they were evil because they were Edomites. That they weren't Israelites at all. I think that those traditions of the elders really came, a lot of those came from those Edomites and not from the Israelites at all. Because they're, that they're not recognizable in the Old Testament, a lot of them. So you might want to talk about the origin of the bad fig Jews. Where do they come from, Clifton? In, in your paper, you pointed to Jeremiah chapter 24. And you pointed to Jeremiah chapter 2. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, the word of God says, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. 
So there was nothing wrong with Judah when they were planted in Judea, in their land. How then are thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? How could that happen? Uh, it can only be contamination of race. Right, it can only be race mixing. And, and there's clear biblical documentation throughout the books of uh, of um, Deuteronomy and, and Joshua and Judges that they did race mix, that they didn't get rid of all the Canaanites, that they did intermarry with some of them. And, and the children of Shelah were always there. And, and that must be what Jeremiah is talking about. That must be how Judah, the noble vine, became a degenerate plant of a strange vine. And that must be how the naughty figs really developed. It wasn't that they weren't naughty figs because of their ideas, that they had no chance for repentance. That they were told that they were going to forever be a reproach and a curse and, and to be chased by the sword in, in every land that they would always be sent. There's no hope in Christ in that. They were never offered any hope. The bad figs were never offered hope in Christ. He said, when Jeremiah wrote about the naughty figs, the remnant of the Judah nation, which had avoided the Assyrian captivity, which was the inhabitants of Judah, had not yet been taken into the 70-year Babylonian captivity. So they couldn't have been bad figs because they had bad ideas from Babylon. And that's the point you're making to refute Jones, because that's what Jones is basically claiming in the Babylonian connection, that they just got bad ideas when they were in Babylon. But they already existed in Jeremiah before they went to Babylon. Yeah, that uh, that book... Uh... <laughs> Well, Sheldon Emery, I think it was, that uh, got that book out to people all over the place that Jones wrote. Here you quoted a, a parallel passage, and, and it probably played into Sheldon Emery's whole No Satan scheme real good, right? The Babylonian connection. Here you quoted a passage, and, and you gave me credit for it, because I used it in Broken Cisterns Part 2. But I think I got it from you. Yeah. I, I got it from a letter that a prisoner wrote you or, or a letter. Yeah, that... yeah. I, I, can't, I, I remember the situation. And it, where did I find that? Uh, I remember the incident. Did this come from Jacob End or somebody like that? One one of your prisoner correspondents? And when I was writing Broken Cisterns Part Two, it, it, it fit in real nice with what I was writing, so yeah. I used it in, in, in my in my I essay. I can't remember all the details exactly surrounding that. Well, I know this is two thousand and six and I think I wrote Broken Cisterns Part Two in two thousand and four, two thousand and five, one or the other. I don't remember. And you say that um, the interpreters, yet you say, you're, you're quoting me, but you're really not quoting me. You're quoting somebody I quoted in, in a quote that came from you, but you're giving me credit for it, which 
I appreciate, but it's all, all this work ain't mine. <laughs> that the Interpreter's One Volume Commentary on the Bible by Charles M. Lehman on page 455 makes the following comment concerning Hosea chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. The absurdity of Baal worship, the whole harlotrous system of Baal fertility rites is utterly ineffectual as well as degrading. Its purpose is to provide fertility for human beings, flocks, and crops. But though the people play the harlot, meaning that they carry on the sexual fertility acts at the shrine, and, and that's where marriage at the altar was really invented, they do not multiply, despite woman's usual secondary place in ancient society. There will be no double standard, for the men are responsible for the shame of cult prostitution. It is they who require their daughters to become cult prostitutes, which are called holy women. And further on concerning Hosea chapter 5, verse 7, it says, In their bow worship, they give birth to alien children, Hosea 5, 7 the offspring of sexual cult rites, because anybody that wanders into the church can have sex with a cult prostitute at the altar. And they quote Hosea 5.7, which says, they have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Hosea wrote concerning the northern kingdom of Israel, even before Jeremiah wrote concerning Judah. And the process was the same. We must remember, however, that Jeremiah also spoke of the very good figs in chapter 24, verse 2. Not all the figs of Judah were bad. Some of them were good. And the reason why the bad figs were bad was because of the race mixing described in Jeremiah chapter 2, which was the same type of race mixing described of the children of Israel in Hosea, in Hosea chapter 5. And that's your entire point that we could see why these bad figs existed. That's how Yahweh planted a noble vine and, and it became a, a degenerate plant, right? Yeah. We're past that. So you, you, you made the exclamation that from all of this, you could see that this process of race mixing started much earlier than Ezra's time because Stephen Jones made the assertion that these things, that these evil things that these Judahites learned in Babylon were compiled in the time of Ezra, right? But from all of this, we can see that the process of race mixing started much earlier than Ezra's time, although he had to deal with the same phenomenon. And, and the, 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 Judahites, which returned with Ezra, were trying to race mix with the Canaanites as well, and, and they were told to put away their children, right? Anti-seedliners, following Stephen Jones' attempt to show that it originated in Babylon and is somehow related to a dualistic Babylonian religion. And you copied, you, you covered that at length in, in the um, special notices to all against two seed line, for which he hasn't the least documentation. Jones must just made the assertions, right? He just made it up. Yeah, he did that uh, um, every once in a while. Every once in a while? I think he probably did it more often than that. Well, it was his habit to do it. 
That, then you said, actually, the process started with the birth of Cain, for Cain was the first broken cistern alluded to at Jeremiah 2.13. The term broken cisterns is a metaphor for manzers, bastards of mixed race who cannot retain Yahweh's spirit implanted into Adam. Now, now one of these, um, though devil people, you quote here, had said that there was an, this idea, quoting an old, um, quoting an old anti-seed liner, right? There is a, there is this idea you wrote that, and now you're quoting this old anti-seed liner. There is this idea, quoting an old anti-seed liner, that ultimately the Jewish machinations were breeding out races, pure races, not just whites. And even back here in 2006, and and I think you did it a lot earlier than that, you, you explained that this is a mistaken idea that somehow there is such a thing as a pure racial line of non-whites. This idea that people have that these other races are pure is crazy. You said all one need to do is do the eyeball test to see if the non-whites are pure. If they have features of an animal, one can be quite certain that they are physically related to that animal. And for anyone who doesn't think such a thing can happen, just go to Genesis chapter 6. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it is translated sons of heaven rather than the corrupt King James rendering sons of God. And, and in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Enoch literature, we have testimony that it did happen, that they did corrupt themselves. They corrupted their own seed. These fallen angels corrupted their own seed with, with every kind of animal. Why would Peter say, why, why would Peter refer to natural brute beasts who were made to be taken and destroyed? What beast did Yahweh make to be taken and destroyed? I think when we come back in, in a few weeks and do part two of the series, we're going to get to um, discuss Satan as the flesh. We're going to focus on that because these no Satan people in, insist that the flesh is Satan. Yeah, right. You might want to say something about that now um, before we close here. But if the flesh is Satan, then we're all Satan, right? Well, Christ himself would be Satan. And because he came in the flesh. Right. Where in scripture does it say that Christ is Satan? It isn't that sort of like some kind of new age um, Kabbalistic idea that God is also the devil. It might possibly be. I think so. I, I don't know exactly where I've heard it, but I bet it, it's in Gnosticism or Theosophy or one of those crazy cult beliefs that, that God and the devil are the same being. Because God creates evil, and they take that out of oh, context. Oh, yeah, they take it out of context. Okay. Well, well Clifton, we're going to stop this here, and, and um, I thank you for joining me tonight and, and discussing this, and I, I hope we can discuss all of the highlights of the entire series before it's over. Okay. you have anything you want to say in closing? Can't think of anything right now. <laughs> we covered a lot of territory. 
Well, thank, thank you for being here, Clifton, and, and praise Yahweh.